good to see all of your faces, or at least to a portion of you who are here in person. Can't see all of you who are watching online, so thank you for joining us. Uh, we're going to be continuing in our Impact World series uh, at the end of Acts chapter 15, so I'd invite you to turn to Acts 15. While you're finding Acts chapter 15, <clears throat> let me tell you about a couple of uh, a couple of people who had an encounter with one another. There was, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. There was a man who was uh, driving across the Mackinac Bridge. Want to make sure the mic is on. Sorry. Uh, he's driving across the Mackinac Bridge, and he looks out his window, and he sees a man on the bridge ready to attempt suicide by jumping off the bridge. And he knows he's not supposed to stop the car, but this is too important. So he hits his flashers, and he stops, and he, he pulls off uh, as much as he can, and he goes over, stop, stop, don't jump. It's not that bad. Uh, it is, the man said. There's no reason for me to go on. No one cares about me. It doesn't matter if I live or die. And the driver who had come up to save him says, Listen, man, you got to understand. Someone does care. It does matter. What's your name? Oh, my name's Sam. Sam, my name's George. And you need to know that God loves you. And He has a special plan for your life. Sam replies, I, I used to believe that. I used to think that God loved me, and now I don't know whether I, whether I believe or not. George said, so you believe in God? That, that's a good place to start. So what, are you a Christian, a Jew, Muslim? So I, I'm a Christian. Really, me too. So what, what sort of Christian are you? Are you Protestant or Catholic? Well, Sam replied, I'm, I'm Protestant. Really? Me too. So as a Protestant, what, what kind of denomination or background do you come from? Are, are you, you know, Lutheran, Presbyterian? And Sam says, well, I, I'm a Baptist, or at least I, I was. I don't know what I am now. I haven't gone to church in a long time, but I, I grew up in a Baptist background. Really? George said, me too. So are you Northern Baptist or, or Southern Baptist? Uh, I'm a Northern Baptist. No kidding. This is uncanny. Me too. Now, are, are you Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? Well, I'm Northern Conservative Baptist. You got to be kidding me. So am I. So, are, are you Northern Conservative Baptist Council of 1879 or Council of 18? Or of 1912. Well, Sam replied, Northern Conservative Baptist Council of 1912. To which George replied, Die, heretic! And he shoved him off the bridge. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of an old joke, but too often that's the way the world sees the church because that's too often the way those who wear the name have behaved. You see, in Christ... We're called to Ephesians 4.3 kind of living. That's our memory verse for today. Ephesians 4.3 says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's how we, as Christ followers, are called to live our lives. 
That involves things like James 1, 19 and 20. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. For man's anger doesn't bring about the righteous life that God requires. Well, as, uh, as you look around you today, that's probably, it's probably not that surprising that we live in a world of turmoil and anger. doesn't sound a lot like what I just described. Now, it's one thing for unbelievers to act like unbelievers, but Christians? We need to reflect the reality of Christ through our relationships. Paul and Barnabas actually seem to do that here, even in disagreement. As we look at Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 41, what seems at first glance like the end of a friendship appears to really be a model for handling conflict between Christians. As we see this unfold here in today's text, our core reality becomes clear. I'm going to give you the core reality first, then we'll read the text. Core reality is that spirit-filled unity turns blow-ups into blessings. Spirit-filled unity turns blow-ups into blessings. Let's, let's read. Starting with verse 36, Luke records it this way. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go, go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, I've seen this passage talked about a number of times, and very often I think it's described in a way that doesn't actually fit what we read. As we see this text, again, that core reality kind of jumps out at me. Spirit-filled unity turns blow-ups into blessings. Now, understand, conflict is like fire. Fire is a useful tool when handled well, but a destructive force when handled poorly. It's a useful tool when handled well, but it's a destructive force when handled poorly. My brother and I can personally attest to that. We know what it's like to mishandle fire and have it get a little bit out of control. Unfortunately, I know what it's like to mishandle conflict as well and have it get out of control. You see, conflict in, in its own right isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it, it helps get us to a place of a better decision than what we have when we just have uniform thinking. In uh, our uh, organizational management class back at, at Bethel, my brother will remember this illustration when we were at Bethel College, now Bethel University. They pointed out to us the difference between Studebaker, a dominant country, uh, company in the latter part of the 19th century and early part of the 20th century, and Walt Disney Company. Studebaker owned the market. And everyone agreed on virtually everything. 
So when the market changed, when the industry changed, they all saw things the same way without dissension. And those of us living in this area know that Studebaker went out of business. Walt Disney, on the other hand, didn't consider an idea worth pursuing unless nearly everyone was against it. That's when he would fight for what he believed in, and it made everyone better. Disagreements are inevitable, but disunity is not. Conflict itself is morally neutral, simply the result of God giving each of us individual brains. When disagreements are handled honestly and governed by love, they can actually bear positive fruit. God intentionally did not create us with a cookie cutter. Chuck Swindoll in his book, Hope Again, writes this, Union has an affiliation with others, but no common bond that makes them one in heart. Uniformity has everyone looking and thinking alike. Unanimity is complete agreement across the board. Unity, however, refers to a oneness of heart, a similarity of purpose, an agreement on major points of doctrine. Or, to borrow from Leslie Flynn's book, Great Church Fights, what a title that is. Two chickens tied at the legs and thrown over a clothesline may be united, but they do not have unity. How we handle conflict determines whether it's fruitful or fatal. The reality of Christ in me is reflected in how I handle conflict. Spirit-filled unity turns blow-ups into blessing. Now let's take a look at the text. As we walk through this, we're going to see there are some things that we can observe. It's a short text. At the last minute, I decided to, to cut the the passage in half, uh, wanted to go through the beginning of 16. So I, I want to read this for you again and go through the end of 16. We'll come back to that. We'll look more at how to handle conflict as Christians over the next uh, week or two. But today, I want us to see specifically what's going on in Paul and Barnabas. So for context, uh, we're going to back up into uh, verse 35. Understand that in chapter 15, we come from this place where Judaizers, some, some uh, supposed believers, Paul later calls them false believers, from Judea, the area surrounding Jerusalem, come down to Antioch and they start promoting the idea that all who claim Christ, Gentiles, must be circumcised and follow the Jewish laws or they can't be saved. Paul and Barnabas are not having any of that. So the church sends Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem to talk to the leadership council, to James and the apostles, and they get a decision from them, which Paul really wasn't looking for a decision. He was looking for an affirmation of, of what he already knew to be true. And they write a letter to the churches that says, listen, you don't have to be doing all that stuff. We're not going to fall into this legalism. Just be smart. Don't eat strangled meat and, and, uh, that still has the blood in it, abstain from sexual morality, do these things, you're going to be good. But we're not worrying about trying to keep the old covenant law that undoes the grace of God in Christ. 
So, verse 35, we read, But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, after they, they went back, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul didn't think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Let that sink in for just a moment. Two believers, devout leaders of the church, strong in faith, strong in the Spirit of God, and they disagree about how to go about this so strongly that they end up splitting up the team. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. They had preached in Cyprus and planted churches in the cities there. But Paul chose Silas, who had come down with them from Jerusalem, returned to Jerusalem, and ostensibly had come back to Antioch to minister there. He chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went out with their benediction. Verse 41, he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now check out what happens in chapter 16. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived. You may recognize Timothy from the New Testament letters that bear his name, First and Second Timothy. He eventually becomes a pastor at Ephesus. Timothy is a young man who deals with timidity, struggles to be courageous in his faith. A disciple named Timothy lived here in Lystra, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. Verse 2, the believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. He had a good reputation among them. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area. Wait, what? Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. That doesn't make sense. We're going to have to talk about that next week. Clearly, God got it wrong here, right? Of course not. The Word of God is never wrong. So we need to search a little bit for our understanding. Verse 4, as they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey, which included not having to be circumcised huh verse 5 so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers you can see the parallel between the end of chapter 15 and this opening paragraph of chapter 16 in both cases these things that are happening result in the strengthening of the church now here are some observations we need to check from the text first as we see What's happening with Paul and Barnabas, they have a shared purpose. We see this in verse 36. They have a shared purpose. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now, don't misunderstand. This is not, no matter what you may read in certain commentaries, this is not the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. They do not have evangelism as their primary goal. This is a pastoral visit to go back to the churches that are already established. They've gone through, they, they won believers to Christ, they established churches in each of these communities, they set elders in charge, overseers of these congregations in each of these communities, and now their purpose is to go back and to build up, to strengthen and encourage these churches. 
check in on them, see how they're doing, make sure they're still walking right, make sure they're still uh, embracing sound doctrine. So they're united in this. They have a shared purpose. But notice in verses 37 and 38, we see incompatible visions. They have a shared purpose, but they have incompatible visions. Okay, so in verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. You may remember from previous uh, messages, previous passages, this is Barnabas' cousin. Some have speculated that, that the reason he wanted to take him is because of the family tie. I think that's hogwash. The reason he wants to take him is because that's totally consistent with everything we know about Barnabas, who's called the son of encouragement. That's what Barnabas means. He's an encourager. That's what he does. When Paul first was converted to Christ and nobody wanted him around because, you know, death, he was the persecutor, and they were afraid to have him there, Barnabas is the guy who stood up for Paul and said, listen, guys, I've seen him preaching the word. He put his life on the line for the sake of Christ. You can trust him. And he's got my stamp of approval. He stood up for Paul. He was an encourager. So when he brought John Mark into their ministry, trying to give him an opportunity to grow and to share in the work, it wasn't just because, oh, this is family, so you know, we got a little nepotism going on in here. That may have been the connection, but the purpose for Barnabas was always the furtherance of the gospel, the advance of the church, and the encouragement of the individual saint. Same thing happens here. John Mark, for whatever reason, perhaps he chickened out. Many people would speculate that. I, I think that's not unreasonable. Who knows why he went back? Homesickness, any number of things. We're not told. But Paul sees it as a negative, specifically using the word here in Luke's account of deserting them. That's pejorative in, in any way you slice it, right? He deserted us. He bailed when we needed him. It's not good to bring us back. Barnabas, the encourager, is like, yeah, that's why we have to bring him. We've got to get him back on the horse. We've got to get him back on the bicycle. We've got to keep him from falling prey to believing in that discouragement, believing that a chicken is all he is. We're going to build him up. Paul says, no, that, that's only going to distract from the mission we have. We have a job to do. We can't be babysitting while we're doing it. I get what you're saying, Barnabas, that's super, <clears throat> really want to see this kid encouraged, but we cannot bring him on this trip. I have no idea what that conversation sounded like. Maybe Paul said, hey, you know what, we'll bring him next time. And Barnabas said, no, we got to have him now. In any case, they disagree over it. They have incompatible visions. He wants to bring uh, John Mark with him, 38 but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement. Don't, don't read over that too fast. They had such a sharp disagreement. Their visions for how to carry out their purpose diverged greatly. They were incompatible so much so that they parted company. And Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Paul took Silas and went to the mainland. These incompatible visions 
result in our next point. They have a shared purpose, incompatible visions. We also observe here a beneficial alternative. A beneficial alternative. What Stephen Covey would call your, your third alternative. There's a, a synergy that can be found from the conflict. You want A, I want B, A and B are like oil and water, they can't go together. So rather than compromising, rather than bullying one person into the other, we hash it out and we find a third alternative. we got to take Mark. We can't take Mark. Okay, I can keep on going back and forth until I bully you into my position, or we can say, how about this? How about you take Mark and you go to Cyprus and visit those churches? I'm going to take Silas and we're going to go to the mainland and we're going to go up uh, through the other cities that, that we saw there and we're going to visit all of them. This conflict results in actually, instead of one team, two teams doing the same work in half the time which means they get done with what they're doing and they can do more work. The third alternative, the beneficial alternative that was only uncovered because of the conflict, actually results in our last observation, meaningful ministry. Verse 41, Paul, speaking of Paul and Silas, he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now it's implicit here that Barnabas is doing the same thing. He goes to Cyprus. That's the reason he goes to Cyprus. It's the reason he takes Mark is to go and strengthen the churches. Now why point it out? Because he just kind of leaves it hanging. Luke leaves it as implicit with Barnabas. But he specifies a couple of things. He specifies that Paul goes with the commendation of the church, the benediction, so to speak, where the church says, go, we commend you to the grace of our Lord. Now, Surely they did that with Barnabas. Barnabas was there to start the church in Antioch. Barnabas was a prominent leader from beforehand. He was known from early in Acts to be a man full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. He was a kind, generous, encouraging person who was faithful to God. He didn't need to point that out. That's already known. But Paul, who was taking a hard stand on not using Mark, needed to be verified in the account. They both go on behalf of the church. And in the midst of all of this, what we see is conflict and disagreement. Meaningful ministry takes place. It's after the conflict, it's after the disagreement that the churches are built up and strengthened. Whether it's in Syria and Cilicia, or on the island of Cyprus, God is at work through them. So we see these things from the text. How do we put this together in our own lives? Well, let's, let's apply this a little bit. Notice, we demonstrate the unity of the Spirit when we reflect four things. I'm going to walk you through these things one at a time, and I'm going to have you turn to some scriptures. But notice, as we're doing this, we don't handle conflict well in our world, do we? Turn on the TV sometimes. 
open up your app on your phone for your social media stuff. Or just observe your own individual interaction with people. When we have disagreements, far too often it ends our friendships. We were going to uh, do a song for you today and we elected not to, but some of you, if you're, if you're old like me, you may remember a song from the 70s from Dave Mason. If you're a little younger, maybe you remember Billy Dean covering it in the 90s. Oh, we just disagree. About people who've grown apart. It's the end of our love song. And the chorus kept going through my mind as I was reading this text. Let's just leave it alone. Because we can't see eye to eye. There ain't no good guy, there ain't no bad guy. There's only you and me. And we just disagree. That's where Paul and Barnabas come to. They get to this place, uh, unlike the the verses of the song, which we weren't going to do for you, where the, it's the end of our love song, it's the end of our relationship. That's the flesh. That's how we handle things. I don't get along with my parents, so I'm done. I'm going to move away and not have any contact with them. My children disappointed me, so I'm going to cut them off. My spouse and I had a fight. We can't seem to get over this, so we split up. I don't like the decision a particular politician makes, so they're clearly the devil. And we go on and on and on, and we label people, we label one another. Injustice exists, therefore we divide into groups by skin color or ethnicity. And those people, whoever those people might be, they're they're anathema. I, I can't be with them. That's not the way of Christ. We demonstrate the unity of Christ, the unity of the Spirit, when we reflect Christ's mission. Luke 19.10, go ahead and turn there. We'll go ahead and flip through a couple of these. If you're in Acts, you're going to turn two books to the left. Before John, you get to Luke. This is really the, the summary verse, the hinge verse for all of the book of Luke. Oops, I said 19.10, I meant 10.19. No, I surely did not. Let me try this again. I lost my mind here. Once I write it down wrong, then I lose sight of where I'm at. Yes, I was right the first time. I had the wrong page. (laughs) All right, so there we go. Luke 19.10. After speaking to Zacchaeus, you all know the song. Jesus goes to visit. He tells him he's going to visit him. And he says to those around, to, to Zacchaeus and those who are listening, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. And then the hammer. This is the mission of Christ. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That was Christ's mission. Turn back a couple more books to the book of Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew 28, you should be familiar with this. It's the very end of Matthew's gospel. We saw Luke's recording of what Jesus said his own mission was in verses 18 to 20 of Matthew 28 
Jesus himself says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, take up my mission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I'm with you always, to the very end of the age. We demonstrate the unity of the Spirit when we reflect Christ's mission. When our focus is not on fixing the nation so much as it is winning souls for the kingdom. That does not mean don't participate in politics. It does not mean don't be civic-minded. It doesn't mean don't pray for America. What it does mean is everything about this world has to be subjugated to the reality of eternity. God is the foundation for all that we do. Therefore, the reason that we exist is for Him. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Or as John Piper would say, to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. We were created for a relationship with Him. Everything exists for His pleasure and glory. Our mission, given by Christ, is to go and make disciples. In other words, to share in His mission, to seek and to save the lost. We demonstrate the unity of the Spirit, not only when we reflect Christ's mission, but when we reflect Christ's motive. Excuse me. When we reflect Christ's motive, turn a couple of pages to the left to Matthew 22. Matthew chapter 22, looking at verses 37 to 40. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were trying to trap Jesus, and they have an expert in the law throw this trap question at him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replies in verse 37, quoting the Old Testament canon, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But he doesn't stop there. There's a tag attached to it. If you do this, then you must also do the following. The second is like it. The second is an expression of the first. If you love God with all your heart, then you will love people the way God does. The second is like it. Verse 39, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Turn to John chapter 13. So you're going to go past Luke, between Luke and Acts. If you get to Acts, you went too far. John chapter 13. Jesus speaking. In verses 34 and 35, he says, A new command I give you love one another. You got all the law, you got all this stuff, all these things that you're supposed to do under the Jewish law, the ceremonies that bring you to a place of worship on God's terms rather than yours. To seek God's blessing, to seek God's forgiveness, it's still all God, 
He's saying, listen, here's a new command, which is really the old command. It's the greatest command and the second command. Put together, a new command I give you, love one another. But notice how. This is how we see the reflection of Christ's motive. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. Christ's mission to seek and to save the lost, His motive is love. We demonstrate the unity of the Spirit when we reflect that mission, when we reflect that motive, when love dominates how we handle conflict, when everything that might cause conflict is subjected, submitted, subjugated, there's a lot of sub in there, to the mission of making disciples of pulling people out of this temporary focus into understanding eternity, snatching them from the hellfire that they are automatically, by default, condemned to because they haven't accepted Christ, into eternal life because of the love of God demonstrated in Christ, which pays for all of our sin. Third, we demonstrate the unity of the Spirit when we reflect Christ's mindset. When we reflect Christ's mindset. Turn a little more to the right. The books get a little skinnier as we go past Romans and 1 Corinthians to the book of Philippians. You'll find the Romans and the Corinthian letters, then you'll see Galatians and Ephesians. And right after Ephesians, you find Philippians. There are so many more passages I'd love to take you to, but for the sake of time, you can look those things up for your homework. We demonstrate the unity of the Spirit when we reflect Christ's mindset, His attitude. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick up with verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, the same attitude as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage. Rather, He made Himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The mindset of Christ puts the glory of God the Father and the good of others ahead of His own advantage. When my being right is more important to me than God's glory and your good, I am not embracing the mindset of Christ. Notice with Paul and Barnabas. Later on in Paul's letters, and we'll talk about this in coming weeks, Paul has nothing bad to say about Barnabas. Paul speaks of him well. 
In fact, eventually, he speaks of John Mark in the same way, even requesting John Mark to be sent to him because he's useful to me. Their relationship wasn't shattered by this because they had Christ's mindset. Which reminds me, I skipped over an observation earlier. Some of you are like, why didn't he fill in that blank? Uh, The observation after beneficial alternative was prevailing unity. There's a prevailing unity. There's nothing in the passage that tells us that they had animosity toward one another. I know I don't want to make an argument from from, uh, silence here. But because there's nothing telling me that there is animosity, it would be wrong for me to speculate that there was. When I see that they don't speak ill of one another later, when I see that they're still working together to accomplish the same purpose, the teams have split up in a beneficial alternative, but there's a prevailing unity, a relationship that draws them together that's bigger than the differences. When my mindset says my rightness means not just that I'm right, but you must be wrong. I must be the good guy. You must be the bad guy. And I don't have the mindset of Christ. Jesus is God. Don't miss that. Yet within the Trinity, the Son submits to the Father, though they are one. How does that happen? I don't know, because I'm not part of the Trinity. The Son submits to the Father, and the Spirit submits to the Son. That's a voluntary choice. That's an attitude of submission. This is why in Ephesians 5.21, Paul, same guy that we're looking at here in Acts, Paul writes to all Christians, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Have the same mindset in your relationship with one another. We demonstrate the unity of the Spirit. Lastly, when we reflect Christ's manner. When we reflect Christ's manner. We could see that in Philippians 2, but let's turn back to Matthew There are a couple of places that we'll see it clearly there. Matthew chapter 11. My big fingers don't turn skinny Bible pages very easily. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Jesus speaking. He says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. There is a yoke, don't misunderstand. There is work to be done. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, what's the word in your Bibles there? I'm gentle and humble in heart. If you have a different translation, it may render it meek and lowly. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The manner of Christ is gentle and humble in heart. Turn the page to chapter 12, verse 20. As Matthew records the words of Isaiah, 
in verse 20, all of this, this prophecy from Isaiah is describing the servant, the Messiah who would come. Verse 20 says, A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. The manner of Christ is gentle, it's caring, it loves. The mission of Christ is to seek and to save the lost. The motive of Christ is love. The mindset of Christ is submission. And the manner of Christ is gentleness. You and I need to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, is this how I handle conflict? Is this how I handle disagreements with people? Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not telling you not to have disagreements. I'm not telling you not to have sharp and heated disagreements. It seems apparent that that's what happened in this passage. But it was dealt with honestly. Paul and Barnabas talked to each other. They didn't talk about each other to somebody else. They didn't post on Facebook. Can you believe what Barnabas did? He wanted to bring that loser John. You didn't see Barnabas saying, Paul's just so hard. He just doesn't care about anybody. He has no compassion. I did not see that on Barnabas's Twitter feed. When conflict is handled in a Christ-like manner, with spirit-filled unity, we deal with one another honestly. And it is governed by love. Paul and Barnabas trusted their relationship enough to honestly disagree and have a heated debate. Ending in the separation of their team, but not the dismissal of their purpose. They had a disagreement, not a divorce. They're still brothers. That doesn't change. They're still walking the same road. They were not willing to walk away from one another so easily. But they did disagree, and you and I are going to disagree. If you find someone else with whom you always agree and never disagree, then one of you is expendable. God gave us individual brains for a reason, for us to think individual thoughts, but to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's Ephesians 4, 3, living. When we demonstrate the unity of the Spirit by reflecting Christ's mission, His motive, His mindset, and His manner, then it leads us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Spirit-filled unity turns blow-ups into blessings. With Paul and Barnabas, it ended up in the strengthening of the church. Let's wrap this up. Have you ever been to a band concert? An orchestra? When an orchestra is tuning up, everyone is doing their own thing. Individually focused, no regard for what anyone else is doing. They're each playing different notes, different rhythms. They're not trying to make something together. And it's a cacophony. It sounds horrible. Somebody say amen if you know what I'm talking about, right? That tuning period, you kind of overlook it because you know it's got to happen. But it sounds terrible. Once the peace starts, 
And all those instruments are no longer tuning, but focused together. Many are still playing different notes and different rhythms. But all those instruments, all those differences come together to create a beautiful song. The differences actually work together, creating harmonies and musical interest that could not be there in a solo performance. Christian unity is like that. The difference between disagreement and disunity is the difference between harmony and discord. We need not all play the same note, but we must read the same score, follow the same conductor, and seek with all of our hearts to make beautiful music together to the glory of God. We are the children of God. And even when we disagree, and we will, as long as there is love, we will stand. May the Lord bless our effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have given us a family. It's interesting that you choose family to be the illustration of the church because we know from experience that families fight. We do. We'd be dishonest to deny it. We have disagreements and yet we are bound together by love. Teach us how to do this better. Teach us to demonstrate to a watching world what loving, honest conflict looks like in a positive way as we reflect the reality of Christ through our relationships. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.